What up? This is Dart Adams. It's the 10th episode of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, today we're going to discuss something different. Uh, there's a site called Hip Hop DX, and they have a YouTube channel. On their YouTube channel, they do a feature called The Breakdown. Uh, the Breakdown was something that was run by their former editor, editor-in-chief, uh, Justin Hunt, known as The Company Man. It was a piece of shit then. It's still trash now, even though Merce, who is an artist that I actually respect a lot and a big fan of his work going back to Three Melancholy Gypsies and Living Legends, but the series is still trash. Basically, it's nothing more than clickbait. It's just there to draw in traffic for the site. So the quality of the argument or the subject matter is irrelevant. It's moot. All that matters is that it gets a conversation going, it draws eyes, it gets clicks, it draws traffic. Uh, Case in point, they have a clickbait title for the last piece that Merz did, and it's called Why There Hasn't Been a Classic Rap Album in the Past 10 Years. Now, if you don't watch the video, you don't understand why that's the statement now first of all let me just say that saying there hasn't been a classic rap album in the past 10 years is already a lightning rod because people immediately jump to what kendrick or cole or insert popular rapper here has done over the last five to ten years and they're automatically going to say this is wrong they know that that's why they picked that title Here's the flip side. For somebody like me, I know for a fact that there have been numerous, I've written about this, numerous classic rap albums released over the past 10 years. I've also said on numerous occasions that the overwhelming majority of them were made through independent or underground channels or means or labels. A lot of them were put out directly to the to the fans through things like um, Bandcamp. Maybe it started out on SoundCloud. They were self-distributed. You paid your money to TuneCore or whomever, even though TuneCore here has problems, um, and you get your music out there to people, go straight to iTunes or Google Music, or whatever avenue you want to use to distribute your music. If even if you're not on a label, even if you have your own site or your own label, your own home. But the fact of the matter is there've been numerous classic rap albums released over the last decade. So once you get past that initial clickbaity title, you realize that oh, they're baiting you again. This is what they always do. They want to get a knee-jerk reaction from people. So you go to the actual site, the actual YouTube channel, and you listen to Merz's argument. And the unfortunate part of it, which I knew was going to be the case anyway, is the argument is weak as fuck. His assertion is that you need a certain amount of time to determine whether an album is classic because it has to stand the test of time. It has to have an impact. It has to... Uh, reflect the time in which it was released, yada, yada, yada. Yes, these are all true. All these things are true. The problem is that we live in a time where 
generations, usually I said this last uh, podcast, I believe, generations typically take in human time 20 years. However, when we deal with art for a variety of reasons, which I illustrated the last time, whether it do with uh, sea changes happen every three to five years. That's how you can determine a new generation of something coming or the impact things switch over every three to five years now so the fact of the matter is that it's not going to take 10 years to determine whether something's a classic but the point is that it's never necessarily taken 10 years to determine where something's a classic timeless art is timeless art but also we have to look at everything on a case-by-case basis especially if you look at the medium there are some times when you put out something and it takes 10 years for it to reach its audience or 20 years before people recognize it. In some case, something can be so revolutionary that it takes a longer time for people to come back to it or discover it for whatever reason. That's not the case for everything. And I feel like Murs really shot himself in the foot by saying that no classic albums have been released in the last 10 years because you need 10 years to determine and something's impact. And also when you look at his argument, the argument is flawed as fuck on a basic level, on a cellular level even. So if we're going to talk about if we're going to talk about the issues with classic material and how people determine it. We're going to have to go back to the beginning of the concept. The concept of what constitutes what's classic and what stands the test of time. We have to go back to a concept that started post-Civil War. What concept am I referring to? The concept of the great American novel. In 1868, the concept of the great American novel was created by a man named John William DeForest. And the um, essay that he wrote. So what happened was people decided that we should go back and figure out what exactly first we need to. He laid out the guidelines for what constitutes a great American novel. Fine. But then people after the fact decided to go back and determine what books, what novels fall under this guideline. So you're with me. 150 years ago, a man said there he presents the concept of the great American novel. From there, scholars, uh, journalists, readers. Now, when I say readers, I'm talking about people that are among the elite, I'm not talking about just everybody. Everyone, you know, the groundlings, the common people weren't really included in this because when you determine things like that, it's usually the elite of the learned who come to these decisions. Not everybody. So they go back and they figure out which books fall under the guise or the guidelines of the great American novel. The first book that they determine actually falls under this. You know, these stipulations and it is worthy was written in 1826, released in 1826. Okay. Now, by my count, 
There have been less than 25 books that are universally agreed upon since 1826 and the, and the creation of this concept 150 years ago that fall under the guise of the great American novel. Less than 25. I believe it's 24 because one of the authors, uh, they've designated two books of his. They can fall under the same guideline. So technically it's 24 or 25 books since 1826. That's insane. Okay, now if we break it down further. Since 1973, there have been 12 books that fall under this guideline. 1973 was 45 years ago. Okay, now if we look further at these books, only three of them were written by black authors. 1940s, Richard, 1940s, uh, Native Son by um, Richard Wright. 1952s, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And Toni Morrison's Beloved, which was written and released in 1987. Three. So when you look at these books that are regarded as the great American novel, you automatically know that there's something wrong here. Apparently, what people determine is the great American novel, they have these lofty expectations or determinations, these elites, these, these uh, scholars, these learned people. And as you know, there's a lot of bias involved. And what would constitute the great American novel? I, I'd say that what they like, um, Infinite Jest is up there. Um, is a great American novel it was released in um, 1996. Which I mean, who would say it isn't? Uh, I believe uh, Cavalier and Clay is also there, but like the last one is from 2010. To tell me that there's n- there aren't any other books. That really should count or be considered the great American novel released in the last 75 years is asinine. It's insane. The standards are far too high. They're far too lofty. It's insane. The reason I bring this up is because there's a book. I mean, there's a film called Finding Forrester. And in Finding Forrester, the film is about a man William Forrester, who wrote the great American novel, a book called um, Avalon Landing, I believe it's called. And you're supposed to, it's supposed to get him, keep him paid for his entire life. That would have been probably what, one of the 25 great American novels written and acknowledged widely as a great American novel since 1826 and the concept was created 150 years ago. To give you an idea of how hard it would have been to do. So we look at those lofty expectations and that insane level of greatness that you need to reach in order to have your book considered the great American novel. 25 over 175 plus years. What? 
25 and just under 200 years. Pardon me? So we back up from that and we look at the classic. How we determine classic status in other mediums, right? When Merz goes into his assertion as to why we should wait 10 years to determine whether or not something's classic, he goes into automotives, which is stupid. The automotive industry has no real parallel to art. If we're talking film, if we're talking literature, if we're talking music especially, you cannot compare these two things like they're analogous. Like you can draw parallels between them that make sense. You can't. The fact that he starts off with this is fucking hilarious to me. He's already dug a hole for himself. Okay? Now, let's think about this for a minute. When he goes into what albums are classic and the examples he uses, he immediately goes into the top of the billboard charts. First off, dumbass, if you're going to talk about what albums or what art stands the test of time, you don't start with what's at the top of the billboard charts where the masses enjoyed it and have generated the most income or revenue. What you do is you go directly to what's the most critically acclaimed. You would have to also draw a parallel or create a Venn diagram between the most critically acclaimed and what made the most money. What films, what books, what albums fall under both categories? Then you make your determination from there. You don't just immediately jump to what the top selling book was. You don't immediately jump into what the top selling album every year was. You don't immediately jump into what the top selling, what the highest grossing film was. Because for the most part, and I can tell you this from experience, a lot of the times, the biggest blockbusters end up being huge for that year and forgotten about later. Because they didn't have any real substance to them. And this is what we're talking about with uh, quality art and classic material. Now, let's just, let's just dial this back for a minute, right? Let's think. In 1968, George A. Romero created a film called Night of the Living Dead. When it was released in fall 1968, it immediately became a sensation. It changed the way films were made, especially if you're talking about horror, grindhouse, and exploitation films going into the 70s forever. It changed the idea of who could be a leading man. It changed the idea of what horror presented like. Tone. It made people emotionally invest in a story beyond just it being scary. Night of the Living Dead is a classic horror film. Are you trying to tell me that it took until 1978 
for people to understand that? Absolutely not. Matter of fact, it's one of the reasons why the phrase cult classic was coined in the first place. Because it was shown in art houses and grindhouse cinemas for years. And it influenced the why a generation and a generation after that and another generation after that. And when I say generation in this form, talking about art, I mean every three to five years. So by the time... 1978 comes around and they actually do make another Night of the Living Dead film. Two generations of filmmakers and fandoms have passed. Well, two to three, if we're going three to five. And that made its impact even greater going forward. It didn't take 10 years to determine whether or not Night of the Living Dead was a classic. I'm pretty sure people knew it was a classic way before then because it already affected film perfect example 1971 uh if you look at the film industry the independent film industry really got its beginnings as we know it in 1971 behind two films that were released in um spring 1971 i believe april 23rd april 24th uh Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song was released. Now, before that, he'd released the um, soundtrack. Um, the soundtrack makes its rounds. The film comes out. The film gains more and more popularity. It expands to more and more theaters. It gets bigger and bigger. The next week after it debuts, uh, the film Billy Jack comes out. Another huge independent film. At a time when there was no real independent film industry as we know it. Uh, Billy Jack, the man who made Billy Jack, Tom Laughlin, he had to bring the film to each cinema himself. He had to book it himself. After spring 1971 goes into summer 1971, these films start making so much money and generating so much excitement that major film studios decide to make films the same way. And they start appealing to the grindhouse audience. They start appealing to what later becomes the exploitation audience. So Tom Laughlin and Melvin Peebles create the independent film industry in spring 1971. When you look at the films that come out in 1972 and 1973, which were immediately influenced by these two films that they were released, that they released in 1971, you look at films like Shaft, look at films like uh, Superfly, these films are also now considered classics. I mean, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, it's released. Do you think it took 10 years before people recognized what's going on as a classic? Are you serious? Do you seriously believe that? Go through any of the Beatles, uh, their, their uh, genius run, Revolver, The White Album, 
Sergeant Peppers. Do these albums sound like albums that it took a full decade before people realized their impact on the gen- on the era or their classic status? Now again, some albums are do fall under this guys. Do fall under this um these stipulations, but not all. So you can't paint them with a wide brush. If we're talking about Nico and the Velvet Underground, Nico and the Velvet Underground was arguably the most influential album of what, 1967? If you look at it from its impact going forward, but it didn't sell shit when it came out. It sold so few copies when it came out, it barely made the Billboard charts. But Murs makes the mistake of going to the top of the Billboard charts in his video on YouTube to determine whether or not, oh, these albums are classics. No, that's not where you go. For, for the most part, you go to the bottom or you just look at what's most critically acclaimed. Perfect example. Liz Fair's um, Exile in Guyville. She releases that album in 1993. Did that album tear up the charts? Did it sell a gang of copies? No, it didn't. But it was super influential. Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville which I think came out June 1993, was so influential that she was getting women signed for years after her album came out. Alanis Morissette got her deal largely because of the critical acclaim and appeal and influence and success of um, Exile and Guyville. I mean, you look at Cat Power. You look at Jewel. You look at Fiona Apple. A lot of these women were able to get that look because of the years that followed from Exile in Guyville, which Liz Fair released. Did that album sell anywhere near as much as these other albums? No. Sheryl Crow's Tuesday Night Music Club. All of these albums were directly influenced by people in record labels by Liz Fair's album, which was released on an indie label because people kept talking about it. Did it take 10 years for people to, to look at this album and say it's a classic? Absolutely not. In five years, it changed the industry. By 1998... How many albums did Lid Fair made by nineteen ninety by nineteen ninety eight? Whip Smart came out when nineteen ninety five and ninety six. But the point I'm making is, to say that you need to definitely wait ten years is ridiculous. Off the Wall by Michael Jackson. How long did it take before we realized that album was a classic? Not long at all, did it? Let's apply this to Prince. Now, his earlier albums, it probably took people a while to recognize as being classic. 1999, Purple Rain, Parade, Sign of the Times. I'm pretty sure it didn't take people too long 
to regard these albums as classics. I was there, I lived it, I know for a fact that's not the case. Janet Jackson's control changed the entire industry going forward in 1986. 1987, Keith Sweat releases his album, his debut album, which kind of introduces New Jack Swing to the field. But then by summer 1988, we have New Edition, who released Heartbreak on the same day Bobby Brown releases Don't Be Cruel. This entire continuum and timeline completely transforms not only black music, but pop music as a whole going forward. So you're telling me that it took until 1998 before people felt comfortable saying Heartbreak was a classic album? Do you truly believe that? Hold off. We can't call this a classic album until a full decade has passed. Get the fuck out of here. That is a horrible, horrible argument. And it doesn't count for everything. Yes, there are certain times when there's a film or a book or an album or a painting, whatever. Whatever medium it is where it takes a long time for it to be regarded as a classic or to be appreciated for what it is. Maybe it's ahead of its time. That's not the case for everything. So to paint everything with the same brush saying that we need to wait a decade for something to be determined a classic is problematic. And I'll explain further why. The genre rap was... Initiated really on record summer 1979. I'm pretty sure the first rap record that came out was uh, King Tim the Third Personality Jock by Fatback Band. Um, I think it was August 1979 It came out as a single. The album came out earlier. So from there, we had other, other songs come out. But the song that blew everything open for rap as a genre... Uh, was released in October 1979, as we know, was um, Sugar Hill Gang's A Rapper's Delight. Now, Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight becomes a hit, really, over the holiday season. This is when it crosses over at the beginning of 1980, and it becomes an R&B hit, where it officially cross- hits the charts. I say officially hits the charts because there was nothing to chart rap. It didn't exist before 1979. So it has to be on the black music charts, hot black singles. So when you look, look at the charts back then, you notice it's a rap hit. The first rap hit, 1980. Of course, they don't register with the RIAA, so they don't get their gold or platinum or double platinum status. So if you go back and look at what the first rap song is that went platinum and double platinum, it won't come up. Because it wasn't properly registered. And there were no charts for rap because it didn't exist as a genre. Going all throughout the 80s, we get to 85, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88. And rap gets increasingly more and more popular. I Yesterday on Twitter, I went through the June 11th, 1988 Billboard charts. First, the hot black singles and then the top black albums. And I highlighted from, they only stopped, they stopped at 50 online. The hot black albums goes up to number 75. And the hot black singles actually goes to 100. 
But of course, they don't cover all that. You have to find a physical copy of Explains Before. You have to find a physical copy of Billboard to find the entire list. And the bubbling under which goes to 125. The point I'm making is, when you look at how many rap songs are in this chart back in 1988, you realize the inroads this genre was making in black music where it was really... Black music was very resistant to rap. What the, what point am I making? I'm getting to it. There were no rap charts until after the first rap Grammy was given out in 1989. Weeks after that rap Grammy was given to Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Billboard decides to create a rap chart. So that's March 1989. The genre had been around for a decade before Billboard gave it a chart of its own. And that chart stopped at 30. Again, I've highlighted other charts go to 100. Then they have a 25 bubbling under. Rap stopped at 30. Any other song that didn't make that 30 were in the R&B or back then the hot black singles charts. It didn't transfer. It didn't transform into the R&B charts. And then later R&B and hip hop charts until much later. Far too late. So, that being the case, rap, and then rap is an art form, albums, the earliest rap albums probably came out really 1984, very few in 1985, uh, regularly beginning in 1986, more regularly in 1987, by 1988, we started seeing more, 1989, by the end of the golden era, we have a significant amount of albums. So 1986 is the first year you can list the top 10 rap albums. 1987 is the first year you could list the top 10 rap albums and argue about it. 1988 is the first year you could list the top 20 rap albums and argue about it. 1989 is the year you could list the top 25 top rap albums. During this stretch, like I mentioned before when I was talking about... um video games and video game the inception of video game journalism you need journalists who specialize in this field to cover it so what happens in 1990 the top of 1990 after the source moved from Boston to New York they released an issue where they talked about rap being an art form that's been around for a decade and now it's time to register and recognize the status of classic material that's released because at the top of 1990 this is when rap albums and rap songs are going to hit the billboard number one spot i'm not talking about the the hot black singles i'm talking about the billboard hot 100 and the billboard 200 rap albums are going to take over those charts and not just albums released by the beastie boys or run dmc or ll cool j we're talking people who aren't them and that's what happened we get vanilla ice taking the top spot uh capital records fucked up so MC Hammer wasn't able to do it because his single didn't come out in enough formats. And I think it topped out at number eight. I think I explained this in a previous um, podcast. 
later on um after vanilla ice vanilla ice does it uh we get good vibrations by marky mark and the funky bunch um set adrift on memory bliss becomes the first number one rap song in the sound scan era uh NWA's Niggas for Life becomes the number one album on the Billboard 200, which really made a lot of people's eyes open. Why am I mentioning all this? Because it was a new day where now with the sources rating system, their mic rating system, number five, if you had five mics, that meant it was a classic. And this is the first time people started really thinking in those terms. A classic rap album. If an album came out in 1988, like Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, do you think that it took until 1998 for people to agree that it's time to recognize this album as a classic? Absolutely not. I doubt it took five years before people realized that. But Merz's assertion that you have to wait 10 years is ridiculous. Because we had to wait 10 years for the genre to be recognized as a genre worthy of being acknowledged by the mainstream media. We didn't get an American Music Award for rap until it was around for a decade. We didn't get a Grammy. One Grammy acknowledgement for rap, which wasn't televised until it was around for a decade. So by Murs asserting that you need to wait a full decade in an exponential era to determine whether or not an album is a, a rap album is a classic is fucking dumb and is following the same thought process which was borderline racist, if not outright racist, that the music industry and rock critics imposed on rap music as a genre and hip hop culture, period. That's how you come to a fucking determination. That's how you present an argument. The big problem with uh, media nowadays is everything's too fast to be good. I think I explained this before. You have to churn out these YouTube videos every week. And you can't do proper research. You can't go back and check your check your uh, sources. You can't confer with somebody. Hey, uh, is it a good idea for me to use the automotive industry as a good parallel between art? Fuck no. You'll get burned that way. But he did it anyway. That's the big problem with this whole thing. Everyone is trying to just put out content, put out content, and just have it, what's the word I'm looking for? Because it's not going to necessarily resonate with people. The people that really pick it up and accept it for what it is are people that don't know any better anyway. They don't have the background. They don't have the knowledge base. So you can tell them anything, and they'll eat it up. So there are a bunch of people that are agreeing with MERS because they don't know any better. They don't have the background information and they didn't live through previous errors like I did. And the thing is that MERS isn't the person 
at fault for this totally. The guy who started this whole thing really led him down this path. And that guy is a man named Justin Hunt. If you go through Justin Hunt's previous videos on the breakdown, he did some videos that were half-baked. He did things during the conversation that completely undermined his whole point for making the video. He clearly showed that he didn't have a grasp on the concepts that he presented or a full or uh, uh, the knowledge base necessary to actually go through with the argument. He was just talking out of his ass a lot of the time. And unfortunately, the people that watched his videos ate it up. Uh, for instance, um, one of the last videos he did before he switched it over to MERS was he had the assertion that rap music was going to fall into the hands of white people because of the institution of um because of the breakdown of um of the media so um in june june 11th net neutrality died so his assertion was that due to net neutrality being obliterated that black people somehow weren't going to have access to rap music because of the internet and it was going to become the domain of white people and I was like um since when does internet access determine people's involvement in a culture that's existed before internet access did as if the repeal of net neutrality is somehow going to Make there be more white rappers than there were before 1989 and 1990 when rap went super mainstream in the era I was just talking about. I understand that a lot of people draw this parallel between rap going the same route as jazz did or rock did with black folks i need to explain something to you uh i'm a music journalist slash historian now let me explain some, a concept to you that a lot, of, a lot of people they don't fucking understand in regards to rap and black and black folks and black music and ownership okay bear with me there was not a lot of black ownership in the music industry to begin with, right? So in the era of rock and jazz, black folks could afford to jump to another genre because they had plenty of other genres to jump to and they were all related and it was just different chords and you were still performing it in the same spaces and the chitlin circuit existed regardless. That being the case, Doo-wop goes into soul R&B. Soul R&B is related to gospel. Jazz is a cousin of the blues. The blues still exists. Jazz still exists. When black folks, and the audience especially, kind of migrated from jazz back to soul R&B, they could because soul R&B was bigger and wider 
and appealed more to a wider demographic than jazz did from the beginning. But here's the thing. Black people didn't leave jazz. They just went to a different kind of jazz. They went to a, a space in jazz where there wasn't as much white involvement. I have a book in front of me called The Boston Creative Jazz Scene. Uh, the creative jazz scene has something called um, avant-garde jazz in it. Now, in this book, it highlights all the avant-garde jazz communities that, that blew up in Boston and Massachusetts. This wasn't the only place that happened. It wasn't an outlier. They happened in Philadelphia. It happened in Chicago. Happened in the Bay Area, Oakland, San Francisco, California, Los Angeles. Again, these places weren't alone. Seattle. So black people didn't uh, completely abandon jazz. It's just that the jazz that they gravitated to didn't have white involvement. Therefore, it didn't get the same media scrutiny and it didn't get the same coverage. Just, how Mer just like how Merz, when he decided to determine if albums from a certain year were classics or not, he goes to the top of the Billboard charts. You don't go to the top of the Billboard charts. What you do is you look for publications or journalists that cover the genre and deal mostly with independent or underground art or focus on the best or most critically acclaimed art from that year. Which he didn't do. Why? Because he didn't have enough time to do it. If he took his fucking time with his discussion, which is something that Justin Hunt never did because he didn't know what he was doing, then he would have had a more airtight platform and discussion and presentation that couldn't easily be torn apart. When you look at the first golden era albums released in 1986-1987-1989 that you heard which were comparable to each other were actually classic albums so that's not to say that at the time we didn't really recognize within five years we didn't recognize that Pete Rock and CL Smooth was a classic tape but the thing is that you might have bought two classic tapes at once every other week when you have that much classic material back to back to back to back to back to back do you feel the need to say, this is a classic, this is a classic, this is a classic, this is a classic? No, because it's all comparable and it's all great and you need to buy it all. In the era of um, 1988, 87, 89, 90, when we are going to the arcade and we're going to the store, whether it be, I don't know, I've mentioned it before, Babbage's, Electronic Boutique, but also Sears. Because you could buy games at Sears, whether it's Child World, whether it's KB, and we're buying video games. We weren't talking about what games were classic because there were so many. It wasn't until time had passed 
where we realize maybe five years have passed where we look back and that that whole console has passed and there's a new console to take its place then we realize yo this game was a classic why because we played more games that use the same elements from it and there are people that grew up in the industry and around the industry who use that game as their entry to appreciate the art or the complexity or the depth of the genre of gaming going forward and it actually influenced game mechanics and things you saw in games going forward the same thing with film when I mentioned George Romero's um, Night of the Living Dead there are a whole lot of other films Star Wars do you think it took 10 years before people realized Star Wars or The Empire Strikes Back were classics, classic films of course not However, there are films that came out at a certain time that were underground and independent that took people that long. If you do what MERS does and you look at 1987 in film and you're like, okay, let's see, uh, is how long does it take to determine something's a classic? And you pull up the top grossing films of 1987. You're a fucking idiot. Now, if you go look for the most critically acclaimed films of that era or that year, or whatever, 86, 87, what have you, you might run into films like, black and white independent films like, um, She's Gotta Have It by Spike Lee, or Down By Law by Jim Jarmusch. These films are far more influential, and far more deserving of classic status going forward, than the top grossing film of 86 or 87 probably. There are a lot of films I remember from the 80s. Outrageous Fortune. What the, who, the, who the fuck is still watching that now? Hmm? You have to... If you're going to present an argument and go online and have people debate you on it, it better be airtight. It better be bulletproof. You better have... Sp- Spent the man hours researching, testing it, bouncing it off people who are learned and knowledgeable about this art form or media in general or art in general and how long it takes for art to be recognized as great or how long it takes for art to influence other art. If you truly believe that Marvin Gaye's What's Going On took a full decade before people felt comfortable calling it a classic, you're a fucking moron. And if you're going to only apply this to rap, then you're again using the same ideology or the same myopic view as the racist motherfuckers who wouldn't see the art form as comparable to rock or pop. If an album is released in 1984, like Run DMC's Run DMC, then did it take a full decade before we recognize that album as being classic material? No, but by the same token, we didn't need to acknowledge it as classic material because we knew what it was. The idea 
of naming rap albums classic material or classics came out of the 19, January 1990 issue of The Source and the, and the album rating guide. And then it transformed into something else in 1994 around the push between um, the push for uh, Nas's Illmatic. Because why? Another three to five years had passed from that initial wave from the record report where there was a new generation of albums coming out that would vie for classic status. And the genre would have been around for 15 years in 1994. That would have allowed for anywhere between three to five different generations of hip hop fans or rap fans or listeners. You see how these numbers are going? See how these numbers are adding up? How influence goes, how impetus works. That being the case, Merz's assertion that it takes 10 years to determine a classic rap album status or that we need to wait 10 years is ridiculous. Now, another issue with Merz's um, thing is that he's looking at the casual rap fan. The casual rap fan, the person who listens to music who wasn't around before and says that every album is a classic. Do they fucking count? If you're going to ask people who has the best burger, are you just going to take a wide swath of everybody? Are you going to ask people that actually know food? Whose palates you respect? Who actually can determine What's a good burger from a great burger? Not just people who just eat anything and say it's good. So if you're talking to the base and saying you guys listen to everything and think it's classic, do they matter in that regard? If that's the case, then the whole conversation should have been something completely different. Why wait 10 years? Why not just have a conversation about what it takes to determine whether an album's a classic or not? And just leave the fucking years out of it. Won't you just take this time, make it a teaching moment. And then talk about palette or talk about quality. Or talk about what you need to look at in order to determine if something's great or not. The Last of Us came out when? The game The Last of Us came out when from Naughty Dog. I consider The Last of Us to be a classic game. It hasn't been out 10 years. I think the last one came out, what, three, four years ago? It's been released on different consoles, remixed, updated. I think it came out for the PS3 and it came out again for the PS4. But that's a classic game. And if I say, yo, The Last of Us is a classic game, is anybody going to stop me and say, you gotta wait a decade? Did it take a decade before we realized The Legend of Zelda was a classic game? Fuck no. When I was playing Street Fighter in the arcade, I knew this was going to be considered a classic fairly immediately, even though it was unresponsive and it hurt my hands. When I played Street Fighter 2 in the arcade, that was damn near a classic immediately. Contra, Shinobi, the Ninja Warriors. You know, when I played Tecmo Bowl for the first time, did it take 
How long did it take before people were calling Tech Mobile a classic game? A decade? Five years under that? The first time anybody played Live 95 or Live 96. The point I'm making is that that is a horrible argument to make. And it really should have been thought out more. And it's not all Merz's fault. It falls squarely on the shoulders of that fuckboy Justin Hunt. Who would put out videos that made no sense. Where he would contradict himself. Where he would say things. Where he would name drop. And bring in other sources that had nothing to do with his particular conversation. He was just name dropping shit just to name drop shit. He was just talking about people. My friend does this. Or on this video. Or this. And here's a clip from this. Dude, talk. If this is supposed to be your conversation, this is supposed to be your your assertion, if this is supposed to be your stance, stand up there, say it with your chest, and give us the reason why you think this is this. And when you pull up sources, make sure it's something tangible and it's something real. Make sure it actually applies to what you're talking about. Make sure it's actually analogous to what you're talking about. Don't just rattle off shit just to pass time. And if you look at the videos that uh, the company man did, Justin Hunt did, you just look at him and it's like, he's just trying to like get it over 10 minutes. He's going to play another clip. He's going to name drop somebody else. What does it have to do with what you were talking about? I just went 50, I'm just going to go to 55. I just went 55 minutes straight talking and bringing up examples that are actually analogous and actually relate to the actual subject that I'm talking about. And I guarantee you that I left a whole bunch of stuff out because I'm pretty much angry. If you could tell by me, um, I'm like pacing right now because that's how pissed off I am at the state of journalism right now where... Look, everything matters. If you're going to put something out there, make sure it's airtight. Make sure it's well done. It's well researched. It's well thought out because all of this matters. And the problem is that the audience that you're putting it out to, they don't know any better. I know better. Then again, I'm somebody in the space who's not supposed to be here. So I get infuriated when I see this bullshit passed off. Is journalism or something that's well thought out when I know goddamn well that's not the case. I really wish it would end, but it's not going to because in this era, being accurate means shit. I ain't got anything else to say, man. I'm just fucking pissed off. Whatever.